Hello, and welcome back to Sweet 212. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, bringing you a show about something that took place just a few weeks ago, but now feels like a lifetime past, the University College Union strikes of February and March 2020, which drew to a close just as the coronavirus outbreak took hold in the United Kingdom, leading to a complete shutdown of the country's cultural life, and as of this week, a strict lockdown. But as I've been telling my MA students on the online tutorials I've recently been holding at the Royal College of Art, where I was one of 90% of visiting lecturers on terms described as zero hours or precarious, that what was important before this epidemic does not cease to be so for its duration, and will not have gone away when life returns to, well, whatever normal looks like on the other side of this. As regular listeners will know, Suite 212 looks at the arts in their social, cultural and political contexts, and so the state of any university education is a matter of significance to us. But as these strikes particularly affected art schools in London and beyond, I felt it would be the perfect subject for us to relaunch the programme as a podcast. The lockdown, however, means that I've been unable to meet today's guests in person, and so we're recording via Skype, which means diminished audio quality, for which I apologise in advance. My plan had been to record one free episode a month, and one only for subscribers at patreon.com slash sweet212, but that series launch is postponed for now. Instead, I've been conducting interviews with artists, writers, and other cultural figures via Skype, all available for free. So far, I've spoken to London-based artists Salona Sagar and Erica Scorti, and will mostly be continuing with that, adding this episode to our Sweet212 Extra Strand that has run occasionally since 2018, and has usually been recorded away from the studio. Today, I have two guests. Dr Annie Goh is an artist and researcher. She is a lecturer in fine art at Central St Martins and an associate lecturer in sound arts at London College of Communication. She's the Central St Martins University College Union Equality Rep and was recently voted onto UCU's National Executive Committee for one of the London and the East higher education seats, taking office at the end of May 2020. She was previously anti-casualisation rep at Goldsmiths UCU. Kyron Jockin lectures in film and critical practice at Wimbledon College of Arts, part of Camberwell, Chelsea, Wimbledon College at the University of the Arts London, with a particular focus on documentary practice. She has been branch secretary at CCW since 2009 and secretary of the UCU Coordinating Committee since 2012. She sits on the UCU London Executive Committee as casualisation rep and for two years sat on the UCU National Anti-Casualisation Committee. She recently travelled to the University of Paris 8 during the recent strike action as part of a strike exchange to share experiences of industrial action in higher education across the channel. So Kyron, Annie, welcome to Suite 212. Thanks. Kyron, I met you recently as part of an event at Conway Hall, which we will discuss later in the program but Annie and I we met both doing our Arts and Humanities Research Council funded PhDs which I think we both finished last year and graduated early this year so Annie you know I think this is a good moment for uh, mutual congratulation and just to introduce the fact that we've both done PhDs recently which I think will also come up as part of the forthcoming conversation. But Annie, I'd also like to ask you, for listeners who might not be familiar with these union processes, what being on the University College Union's National Executive Committee, what you think it might involve? Yeah, hi, and congratulations, Dr. Jakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I recently 
to my surprise, was voted on to the UCU. So as you said, the Universities and Colleges Union, NEC, National Executive Committee, which is one of the most important decision-making bodies in the union, but traditionally has had a really low voter turnout. The average member doesn't really partake often, turnout's really low. So this time round... A group of us decided to run and a group of us who were active in the campaign um, supporting the election of Joe Grady for the general secretary role, which was successful. And she came in as general secretary last year, I believe. I don't exactly know what's awaiting me, but we have in common that we all believe in kind of member-led and rank-and-file-led union politics, as well as obviously being UCU members. And we have varying experience, varying degrees and levels of experience amongst us. But there's a sense that the union has been a bit stayed or it's been a bit it's become a bit comfortable in some of its ways that are not always that helpful and often not that kind of closely related to members on the ground and their issues and their concerns so that's I guess what what we're hoping to achieve is to bring it a bit more back to the members and involve yeah more engagement from a rank and file level. Great, thanks. I'm sure you're going to be quite busy with that in the uh, foreseeable future when sort of cultural and academic life kicks back into gear again, or possibly even before, as we will discuss shortly. Annie, I wonder if you could start the show by describing the four fights in the current strike. There were university strikes two years ago in 2018, largely around pensions, but these four fights take on a different set of employment practices entirely. So I wonder if you'd like to explain to our listeners what they are. Sure. And this is also absurd because the most recent wave of strikes ended on the 13th of March, I believe. That was just at the cusp when everyone was kind of still pushing back on, oh, this is all business as usual. And then it hit us exactly around then that actually coronavirus is going to take over and change all of our lives very drastically. So talking about these things, although they're only a couple of weeks in the past, seems like a lifetime ago, and it's really weird. So this was very practiced a couple of weeks ago because I was constantly explaining to people on the picket line. I should probably say that the UCU has, you know, nationally been involved. I think there's been three strikes in the past three years. And universities, as some of your listeners will know, are kind of split between post-92 and pre-92 universities. So UAL, the university where I'm based now, is a post-92 university, whereas Goldsmiths, where I was previously, was a pre-92 university. So whilst I was at Goldsmiths, the USS pensions dispute was going on, um, which I think we might talk about in a bit. The recent wave of strike action concerns both of those disputes, so both the USS pensions and what's called the four fights. But at UAL, we were only involved in the four fights dispute. So I'll talk a bit about that, as that's the common ground between the three of us as well in this discussion. So the four fights is essentially or often thought to be mainly around the issue of pay, And as we know, when austerity politics was brought in, this affected the public sector particularly. And in terms of pay, the UCU has said that there's been significant pay devaluation in higher education so that the value of pay has fallen by around 20% since 2009. 
So that's one of the main issues that uh, we went out on strike for as part of the four fights dispute. But however, connected to that and speaking to people on the ground, a lot of people say that they are less concerned about pay and more concerned about some of these other issues. So the other remaining three issues which are connected are firstly the gender and race pay gaps. So nationally, UCU has recorded around 50% pay gap between um, men and women and around 9% race pay gap. So black and ethnic minority staff get paid 9% less and black staff 14% less on average. The second issue is workloads. So people are being made to work longer hours for less money, obviously. And one of the stats there is that full-time staff are working on average two unpaid days a week. Um, which is also very much reflected on the ground. And the final issue, which in some ways is the hardest for people, maybe not in the industry, to wrap their heads around, but there has been a growing awareness of it is casualization. So that's the increased reliance on fixed-term, precarious and atypical contracts. So often they are zero-hour contracts. Sometimes they're not exactly zero-hour contracts, but they're fixed-term and they're precarious. They're not reliable and they're not stable employment contracts. Yeah, so I think there was a lot of support, cycling back in my mind what this was like a couple of weeks ago, on the ground, speaking to colleagues, speaking to passers-by and speaking to students for these conditions that we've you know, endured. And there were 74 institutions which took part in the most recent wave. There was 14 days of strike action, which was a lot. And UAL and various other universities I'm going to talk about including many art schools joined this wave of strike action in February, March 2020. But this was a continuation of um, the first wave, which took place in um, November, December last year, 2019. And it was an increase. So last, at the end of last year before Christmas, there were 60 universities and now we were at 74. So that kind of uh, emboldened and um, strengthened us. And I think, yeah, it was the biggest wave of university strikes in UK history. I think we came out of it feeling like it was a really powerful and worthwhile um, message that we sent to the employers associations of universities and felt like quite an exciting moment to be part of. I agree. I was on the picket line at the RCA with my colleagues. I was contracted through a couple of days of pretty informal teaching that had just been arranged by email you know, there was no more formal contract than that, but I was taking tutorials and group critical sessions with master's students at the RCA, some of whom joined me on the picket line. And yes, I mean, I did really feel like I was doing something very important on the picket line. It may be that the fact that it was the last thing I did before normal life stopped uh, has perhaps coloured that slightly. But nonetheless, yes, it did feel like we were sending a very important message to the uh, vice chancellors and hierarchy at the RCA about our conditions. And we're also a lot of fun. I mean, our picket line involved a lot of dancing. We had a sound system. We did a lot of kind of impromptu teach outs. I read some poems by Bertolt Brecht and Vladimir Mayakovsky, as well as some of my own work. And lots of colleagues there, obviously, who do performance work or are quite used to doing a lot of public speaking. We're also doing impromptu teach-outs on the picket line. In fact, one person on the picket line was due to have his viva, which had then been cancelled due to the strikes, and so did this kind of anti-viva on the picket line, which turned into a session documenting issues both for PhD students in having casualised lecturers and not necessarily being able to rely on having the same supervisors or the same institutional support all the way through their PhD course, but also 
just the feeling more generally of being around a university that was so heavily casualized. I mean, the strikes began on the 20th of February this year, as you say, they went on for 14 days. And one of the things lurking in the background, of course, was the harrowing general election defeat for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party in, in December. I and several of my colleagues at the RCA were quite involved with that election campaign. Indeed, I co-wrote with Kit Kalis from Influx Press. I co-wrote the Culture for Labour letter for artists and writers and filmmakers and other cultural workers to sign because I had noticed a drop in support in the cultural circles I moved in for the Labour Party in the run-up to the election. I wanted to try and reinvigorate that support, but obviously the, the nature of the election defeat in December was so crushing. Indeed, I was at a meeting at the RCA where we basically were discussing tactics for the strike and somebody in the room said, look, we tried parliamentarianism, that didn't work, and there was a very audible sigh around the room. And traditionally, art school workers, I mean, I'm using the phrase art school in inverted commas, but traditionally art school workers have been quite hard to organise, I think partly because even though tutors tend to know each other through their artistic practices, which was the case for me at the RCA and obviously Annie, it was the case for us to our PhDs. You know, lots of people there don't see themselves as teachers, don't think of teaching as their main line of work, and they're often not organised. Indeed, I only joined UCU in February in order to be involved with the strike, although I was was already a member of the National Union of Journalists. But I was very keen to support the strike. I was aware of the high stress levels that were being caused by the practices that the university were employing, um, certainly causing me a lot of stress, and I was only working there one or two days a month. Poor mental health amongst students, and how much harder it was making it for staff to build relationships with students, students who don't always have the same tutors for their tutorials or their group critical sessions can't really build a relationship and in my case you know I barely understood the structure of the course I was was teaching on uh, and there was kind of reduced student teacher contact so you know I don't think you actually need to have been teaching at British art universities for very long to understand the urgency of the issues that were the subject of the industrial disputes but I wonder if I could ask both of you to talk about how university management have responded about what staff are maybe hoping or were expecting to achieve in this regard and you know some of the sort of hierarchical structures of art schools and universities in this country because you know issues like vice-chancellor pay were certainly coming up on the picket line along with everything else. I want to say something about arts and casual labour and the way that these things have come together in this strike because both of you as PhD students in humanities or, or sciences, hard sciences especially, PhD students move through a very precarious period but historically that's been part of a career which is almost like the junior doctor moving to the consultant. So you, you have an overloaded work schedule at the start, you do a huge amount of teaching while you are unusually half paid or badly paid while you're a PhD student and then gradually you get a position and then a more secure position and so on and that hasn't been the case in the art school world because for a long time well for a century the PhD was seen as something which was confined to the edges of art history uh, cultural studies and not practice-based production and so the casualization of labor in in art schools the casualization of teaching had a different kind of trajectory but it's it's all come together at this one point. And I think that's what's powerful about this strike across the country. That as you said, Juliet, that 90% of, of staff at the RCA, along with the University of the Arts London, occupy the sort of two top positions in, in what management likes to think of as global rankings. 
also have huge numbers of either zero-hour contracts or very precarious contracts. And people have um, up to now kind of put up or increasingly put up with those because they're used to a world in which art is not remunerated. They make their work as a kind of, you know, people refer to it as a passion or whatever. They're used to being badly paid or partly paid, expending more materials than they ever recruit, and also filling in the gaps in a precarious kind of economy by doing some teaching. And that's suited, to get back to management, that suited them a lot because having a higher and fire culture obviously means that you can have a sort of soft buffer when you're doing any shrinking of your budgets or increasing of your budgets. It is a kind of polyfiller that they've used to follow student numbers as they move. And that fits in also with the kind of market that we have in higher education now where universities scale up courses because its fees are attached to individual students rather than block grants. So university hitting a cost buffer or whatever can bump up its numbers suddenly find it's over recruited or find it can can increase the size of the course because the demand has increased and so then has a whole range of precariously employed people to kind of fill that gap and that's 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 where this whole four fights and, and the arts world kind of comes together i think because the workload is gets hugely increased because course numbers go up and as i said you know, that that means that people are dealing with juggling huge amount of student requests for uh, support, whatever, as well as increasing amounts of preparation. And so where to come back to what you're asking about management, management sees itself increasingly as running large corporate bodies rather than publicly funded, which they're not really anyway, publicly funded um, institutions or institutions for the public good. They also reinterpret public good as employable students and so they're seeing themselves as kind of running this both money generating operation as it has to be and also kind of production line for new workers and that is what we've been fighting against i think in this in the months building up to the strike and during the strike and it's what we're having to battle against now in terms of kind of keeping things together and keeping things going in the face of coronavirus because suddenly the students as customers are coming back to bite them and saying i'm paying for materials i can't use i'm paying for facilities i can't use and they're trying to quash us into a position of carrying on business as usual so management i think were or university managers generally, including, let's say, prestigious ones like RCA and UAL, and also the Russell Group, were found to have had discussions amongst themselves about the possible reputational damage of information about casualised workers coming out. And they were prepared, I think, to, to start, I think they began to realise that something maybe has to change around that, that habit of employing people in various ways. But I, at this point, we seem it's very hard to judge because as Annie said before we came out, well, we finished on strike on the 13th, which is exactly the point at which lockdowns had started. I was told I couldn't go to a picket line on the last day. We scrambled into a position of kind of cancelling things that were due to happen. Climate March was due to happen that day. We were going to have a huge kind of arts party. And it was exactly at that point that the kind of jubilation turned to stasis, really. But I'll let Annie say more on that. Um, yeah, I might just share an observation. So as you mentioned, Juliet, so previously I was at Goldsmiths where I was doing my PhD and I was um, employed as an hourly paid um, academic member of staff, so as an associate lecturer. And Goldsmiths is an arts and humanities university, but not solely an art school, but although it does have obviously a very famous art school within it, if we're using that term. So 
moving from goldsmiths to UAL has been quite interesting to observe and also compare my own expectations around the attitudes of hourly paid staff at so casual staff. It's probably worth saying that like nationally, I think the um, statistics of casualized staff in terms of like the larger academic uh, staff body is around 60% approximately. So RCA's 90% is massive. And I think UAL's is somewhere up above 75, 80%. I'm not completely sure. So it is, it is more of a problem at art institutions. And I think as Kyron was already kind of touching on, there is a lot to unpack in terms of and as you mentioned, Juliet, how artists kind of identify and whether they identify with their work as work or not. And my observation from Goldsmiths was we were organising there as part of the union um, as anti-casualisation reps with other hourly paid lecturers, many of whom are PhD. And many of us were doing really the lion's share of the undergraduate teaching. So you did a lot of teaching. The preparation time wasn't sufficiently remunerated. So you were often working many, many unpaid hours a week. Um, you were doing loads of admin and pastoral care, which wasn't paid because you were the point of contact for your students. And it was a lot to carry. For, and students have really high expectations because they're paying more than £9,000 a year in fees if they're home students and almost double that if they're from abroad. So the expectations are massive. And there's this huge body of not just PhD students, but hourly paid staff who don't have secure employment conditions. But I would, I suppose, even though I encountered kind of angry, <laughs> angry people, rightly angry people, um, workers at both Goldsmiths and UAL, I, I would say that there is still a sense that because if you're an artist and you're doing hourly pay teaching, but you mainly identify as an artist and you don't really necessarily understand what you're doing um, when you're tutoring art students as work or you don't long-term identify with that role then it does make it does make it harder to organize these workers and to really understand exploitation and the kind of structural oppressions basically that they're being made to undergo and we wrote an open letter so during the strike UAL has more than 2,500 hourly paid lecturers and a group of us wrote an open letter aimed at students explaining to them kind of what the conditions are for people like us who are teaching them. And it's the sort of thing that you don't often talk about with your students, right? I'm sure you found this too. You kind of doing your job, you're not talking about your own working conditions, but as soon as you do, they're very understanding and often they are thinking themselves of going into teaching. So they are quite keen to hear about what it's like and very sympathetic. And one of the things that we picked out from recent UCU reports for that open letter was that um, 97% of people of workers on fixed term contracts at university said they would rather be on a permanent contract. So and I think that kind of pushes back at this idea of people enjoying that flexibility of precarious work. And I think that is something which does kind of manifest itself slightly differently for some art lecturers let's say some casual art lecturers compared to non-art lecturers to pick up on something that Chiron raised which is you know this issue of the practice-based phd my two guests on the recent suite 212 sessions that we've done Ilona Sagar and Erica Scorti are both doing AHRC funded phds one at the RCA one at Goldsmiths 
Annie and I obviously have both recently completed AHRC-funded, uh, practice-based PhDs, you know, myself in creative critical writing at Sussex. In my case, I did a funded PhD because I had been trying for about 10 years to make a creative writing practice sustainable by doing freelance journalism, but obviously found that the bottom had fallen out of the journalism industry, which is always quite precarious, but, you know, it become very much easier to get published, but much harder to make money from being published and much harder to make a sustainable living from being published. And I sort of realised I'd gone as far as I could in journalism and wasn't enjoying it enough to make it worth doing the things I'd need to do to make even a precarious living out of it. And so I applied for PhD funding and I got the funding. I got three years worth of funding from 2015 to 2018, which works out, I think, around £14,000 a year for someone living in London but studying outside, uh, which obviously to most people would not be particularly sort of secure or sustainable I kept doing journalism, public speaking and teaching for the duration of that PhD. And so I was able to find a way to make it work and also was living quite cheaply and had some savings. But there are a lot more people doing practice based PhDs now. So there's been a kind of academization of the arts and for kind of mid-career artists. You know, I think everyone I've just mentioned was sort of, you know, at least in their late 20s, if not their 30s on starting these these PhDs and had done other things before. But that makes us as practice-based PhD students ripe pickings for this precarious working environment because we're we're used to it anyway. Uh, Annie, as you say, lots of us see ourselves very much as like artists or writers or filmmakers or whatever first and then teaching as something that's very much secondary. But maybe we wouldn't feel it was so secondary if we were brought into secure jobs with proper pay packages and encouraged to build regular relationships with the same groups of students uh, over the course of a year it might be a lot more satisfying and fulfilling for us and thus for the students so I mean we've we've talked about this a bit already but can I ask about how supportive students were on the picket lines where you were did they come to the picket lines did they produce materials as students were encouraged to how did they get involved Students that I've encountered, well, students at every single site at UAL came out in large numbers to support staff. Uh, not always at the beginning, though the student union were entirely supportive. I know some universities across this 74 who were on strike, I was surprised to find that some students actually weren't. I, mean, I don't know why it surprised me, but it did, that some students weren't behind their lecturers. But ours were absolutely united in... Um, well, sorry, those that came to the picket lines and those that signed petitions, which were, anybody knows more about this, I can't remember the figures, but it was hundreds and hundreds of signed petitions, open letters. We had beautiful banners, we had incredibly uh, intricate making and performing by students around picket lines. Chelsea, they came out and, and made posters, they repurposed things that were lying around the building. They made huge banners that said, you know, please, please pay our stuff properly. It was incredibly touching. And, yeah, it's it was very hard for uh, our employers to drive any kind of wedge between students who were actually giving up lectures during that time and those of us who were, as we explained, giving up our pay uh, in order to make what we call Fairy University. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I think it was very much largely supportive. And there was maybe good to mention several student occupations around the country. So at one point, I think there was as many as 10 or 12. I think it began and the first ones were, I think, Cambridge, Exeter, Edinburgh, Brighton, UAL occupied at some point, RCA, students were on occupation. 
Nottingham, Manchester, I think, were also occupied. Liverpool, I've got friends there. So that was quite exciting to see that students on, you know, at least some students were very much in support. And the thing that came up time and time again is, where is our money going? So they all are very much aware and the kind of, as I'm sure we all know, as kind of university teachers, students are, you know, working on the whole several part-time jobs in order to finance their studies. And they the mental health repercussions of that are already kind of, it feels like you're constantly a breaking point with many of them. And for this to come up and for them to then realise, hang on, where is our money even going? They're not even paying our teachers properly. So I think that's where the large amount of support came from. Then when you when you bring in Vice Chancellor Pay and you tell them that they're all earning an average of 250k a year and they're like what (laughs) there's just this massive disbelief so yeah I think we did on the whole have a lot of support even though nowadays um I think we might move on later talk a bit about you know before the student fees um uncapping of the student fees happened but nowadays it, it all functions along that logic though so the petitions um UAL students for example started a petition that was based around give us our fees back because you know, we're not getting taught and we're paying loads of money, which is not the preference of all um, trade unionists to kind of toe that logic. But at the same time, that was done in a very supportive manner and very clearly pointed the finger of blame up at the vice chancellors and not at the teaching staff who were taking the strike action. So some of us were quite sympathetic to that. But it is it is uneasy, right, because we're still buying into that logic or we still have to kind of follow that line of thought which makes us all very uncomfortable yeah i'd agree with that absolutely we've already alluded to this a little bit but it would be interesting to talk a bit more about you know i'm talking a lot about the royal college of art partly because that's where i've been working but partly because these issues feel particularly acute there and the coronavirus outbreak has heightened some of these issues there's been an interesting story in the last week or so covered by David Batty in The Guardian, where RCA students have demanded that the school suspend or postpone their degree courses after the school decided to move the curriculum and exhibitions online during the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, Students say they weren't consulted about this and, you know, they're having online tutorials. Indeed, I've been doing some with certain students who obviously are unable to access their studios at this point. So, Some students who decided to remain anonymous started a petition called Save Our Degree Show, which last time I checked had 6,000 signatures, including the artist Mark Leckie. Indeed, one contemporary art student said that it would be a huge disappointment to be unable to stage her work in a real-life exhibition after two years of work, taking on thousands of pounds in loans and working side jobs around the clock in order to realise it. And she said that her degree show work, which was a room-sized video and virtual reality installation of an estate agent for property on a floating island to escape an apocalypse, which of course feels particularly topical right now, required the audience to physically engage with it in ways that couldn't be simulated online. You know, painting students said that a lot of their work was installed in unusual ways or not on a wall, and that a virtual show didn't work for anyone who wasn't in digital media, which was the majority of the students. An RCA representative told The Guardian that the college was considering rescheduling for the autumn, but ultimately felt that pushing the degree show back that far wasn't feasible or realistic and said that a lot of students wouldn't be able to stay in London for that extended period and that to commit for these significant additional costs and then further costs for them to return to London in future, the RCA has a lot of international students, particularly from China, 
So a lot of them wouldn't be able to commit to returning to London in future with the level of uncertainty. Um, and indeed, normal life might not have resumed by September anyway, which, yes, may well be the case. Another issue here, something that wasn't one of the four fights, but I think is going to become increasingly salient in the near future is this issue of work being moved online and you're already hearing of universities asking lecturers to uh, record their lectures so of course they can just pay them to deliver the lecture once uh, and not on a annual or regular basis i and my students have found that in extraordinary circumstances individual tutorials conducted via skype have their merits they're not useless by any means but you know they've replaced group critical sessions which are impossible really under these conditions so i wondered if either you had anything to add about the sort of digitalization of universities and how that might exacerbate some of the issues we've been talking about i think that um this ties in with the point you made or question you raised it wasn't i didn't really address earlier about hierarchy what it's revealed to me and those i've been speaking to is the complete disconnect really between those involved in managing delivery of of higher education and those involved in delivering it that there are plenty of people who spend their lives entirely in offices who haven't taught for many years it's true that some people in dean's positions still teach but by and large, people, the, further, the higher up they are, the higher up they get, the less they have to do students except as potential markets, as they refer to them, and the student experience, which is uh, cited always as being the heart of what we do. But I think there are two things at stake here. One, one is that we see ourselves as kind of writing our own redundancy notices by making an efficient or, or trying to transfer what we do online. And the other half, which, which reveals quite how much cannot be transferred online. You know, a lecture is not is, is a lot more nowadays than, or a good lecture, let's say, than uh, a display of information at the front, which is copied and, uh, and absorbed by those uh, you know, facing and by an adoring audience or a bored audience. But it's highlighting a gap which we have to find some way around. I suppose it's pushing, it's, it's pushing to the forefront the question of why people go to university and why you go to an art school. And that's usually the answer to that from students are very often not to do with acquiring digital skills, which is, on the other hand, to go back to the point I made before about employability. A lot of our uh, senior managers and employers think that actually acquiring digital skills makes people employable. So we, we need to churn out more of that. Whereas actually, you can, you know, people are finding there's no reason to spend three years and, and 30, 40, 50,000 pounds training to do that in in one of the most expensive places to live in in Europe, in London. So why they're at art school is actually usually to do with things which can't be replicated on screen. I think there's always people, particularly managers, who will be looking to find an opportunity in a crisis. And I think that's very much true um, now with this sudden push to move everything, to move teaching online. And I think we do need to be really careful we're all really committed to our students and want to support them in their learning. But there are many, very many complex and quite scary intellectual copyright type issues at stake with all of this, as you mentioned, Juliet. It's something we really need to be really careful about. And I think organising and the kind of the strength of the union that we built up during the strikes, at least I can speak for at UAL and at CSM, at Central St Martins, is that now at least we're much more connected to our colleagues. So we're in a slightly better position in terms of sharing that information and knowledge. Oh, I've been told to do this. Oh, you sh- should you push back at that? Just doing that without questioning it and 
what kind of assurances do you have about your lecture going online, etc. That sort of thing. So on the ground, I think there's a couple of things you know we can do in terms of trying at least to push back at some of the things that are being rushed through now. At the same time, we've got to remember that universities are mainly thinking in these key neoliberal terms of productivity and they're thinking very legalistically. How do we deliver legally the teaching to our students so that they can't demand their fees back? So what you're bringing up about the degree show, I think, is really relevant. Those students rightly expected to have a physical degree show and if they're being told they're only going to have an online degree show then they're going to be pretty angry about that. The university is only thinking in that kind of legalistic logic and yeah I think we really do need a lot of lateral thinking and a lot of collective effort to push back at those logics. I always come back to my time at Goldsmiths and they developed something called the Gold Paper, which I think was fairly well circulated in UCU circles. But that was a response to the government's white paper, which was the kind of policy document which they brought in, um, which made universities effectively run like businesses. And the bottom line of that was um, this idea of protecting education as a public good. And I always come back to that in explaining it to my students who are, you know, 18, 19, 20, because that's all they've known. They've never known a university where you didn't have to pay more than nine grand a year in fees. So trying to combat that logic, I think, is one of the hardest things, especially when you're involved on the ground in negotiations, when to a large extent you have to fight them on their terms. If you're in these policy meetings with university management, you can't reject every single one of their terms else they won't speak to you. So you do have to take on a lot of the framing of things whilst at the same time trying to refuse in many aspects the logic behind it. I absolutely agree. And, you know, the solidarity between students and lecturers, I think, in this case is hugely important, um, as it is with all of the issues we've been discussing. And of course, one of the things that has been building a, a certain solidarity, a certain sense of class consciousness, is the culture on the picket lines itself, which of course is one of the things that this further atomization brought about by the digitalization of, of university courses threatens to destroy, perhaps deliberately. And I'm thinking of some of the teach-outs and events that have taken place on the picket line. You know, there were a lot of teach-outs at Central St. Martin's this year. I went to a very good conversation with Owen Hathley and Douglas Murphy about the architecture of the modern university, how atriums at universities now are basically built to impress visiting parents rather than to have any kind of practical use how university campuses are being designed and positioned to make it harder for students to occupy them the same goes with the positioning of halls of residence student buildings which are often subject to a lot of the same deregulation practices that other buildings for people deemed you know less important or expendable or less profitable have been you know indeed in the run-up to the general election in December there was similar situation to the Grenfell disaster in Bolton with a block of student flats that caught on fire due to the cladding on them you know luckily in that case no one was killed or seriously injured but that was that was a very interesting conversation I know one of the universities, uh, UCL, I think University College London, ran a teach-out on the works of the wonderful Soviet-era feminist theorist Alexandra Kollontai, which I was very sorry I wasn't able to make. Jeremy Della spoke at one of the picket lines. There were workshops on ending the Prevent programme, which is supposedly this government program aimed at you know detecting extremism within universities and has widely been criticised for the way it 
targets Muslim students in particular. You know, I've already mentioned the anti-viver. There was an event at the Horse Hospital that I was part of in support of the Royal College of Arts. So various people that taught there, including myself, Jordan Baseman, Anne Duffel, Eleni Icon, Emily Labarge, Harold Offer, Aura Satz, Ty Shani and others all came and read. And there was the event at Conway Hall, which I mentioned at the top of the programme, which, Kyron, is where you and I met. Uh, and this was organised via WhatsApp quite hastily, but it had 50 art school workers from the Royal College of Art, the University of the Arts London, the Courtauld Institute, the Slade School of Fine Art and Goldsmiths, um, and was particularly organised by Anti-University, who are a collaborative experiment in radical learning that attempt to reimagine the 1968 anti-university movement and the student strikes and occupations in London. Uh, maybe we can come back to those a bit later. But that event was, was very interesting and very useful, and um, Annie and Kyron, you were both there. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about that event at Conway Hall, and given that it ended up coming at the end of the strikes due to the coronavirus outbreak how useful it was at sort of summarizing what had happened and bringing striking lecturers and students together i think it connects very closely to what you're talking about picket lines and even there the, the discussion on the picket line of the atrium and of, of the architecture of, of the spaces that we we work in um, because i think that issue of time and space is, is exactly what picket lines managed to achieve and it's what this moving back into our own homes or our homes becoming our workplaces is undermining and that we have to kind of remember we have to take I think the great thing about it was it provides like the horse hospital event which I was at a point of point of as they say in French you know like a um, forgetting the English term for it a landmark that we can look back you know uh, we can take our bearings from because it's very easy the exact, the exact, exact opposite is what's happening now when you're at home and you're working on your own screen or the screens provided by your university you lose all sense of space you lose that sense of communal space and you lose the possibility of controlling your time I think one of the main problems that people are going to face is establishing boundaries and borders around their private and work selves and also around their capacity to deal with the amount of stuff they're being asked to do, which inevitably means that you end up, I mean, most, most artists and writers are used to working in the small hours of the morning and that's exactly where our kind of arts culture tips all badly into our um, our working culture. So I think a great thing about the, the Conway Hall and the picket lines is, is that as I said at the time, actually, about, about creating a pause, about pausing the rat race, pausing the everyday, pausing the unstoppable flow of, of stuff to do and stuff to be delivered and allowing conversations which take space. You know, conversations take time and space and the architecture, as you rightly point out, actually militates against that and the way in which we work, even things like the disappearance of common rooms or communal spaces, the fact that well, no lecturers I know actually manage to take anything like a lunch half hour, let alone lunch hour. So they don't even congregate in canteens in the way that used to. You don't have spots even to make tea and coffee. So the little kitchenette conversations that used to happen, the little, the, you know, there still is actually a bar at Camberwell, a staff bar, which is like something that's been unearthed from the Eastern Bloc in a kind of era. It's, it's quite extraordinary. It does only take cash, which is quite sweet. But people have chopped to find themselves is there being able to have a kind of off-record uh, informal overlap and conversation. And Conway Hall, I think, did exactly as you say. It's, we've been trying uh, on London Region, I'm 
executive. I mentioned you mentioned in the intro that I'm on something called London UCU London Region Executive Committee, and we've been trying there to make to find ways of making connections between people who obviously have you know an awful lot to connect about, and that's specifically about people who teach in the arts, which is going to come increasingly under pressure in in this government and in the kind of recession that we may move into, and. That was a way of us physically being together, having formed WhatsApp groups and, and quick forms of communication. But I think, I and mean, we've carried on sharing since then, how are you pushing back on this? What are you being told now? And I think, as I said, it's mainly that, that idea of creating a particular place and time that we can point back to in our minds and think that's normal, that's the, that's the solid, that was real. The thing that happened afterwards uh, on Friday the 13th was, is, was where it started to seem surreal. Yeah, I totally agree that the picket lines formed a kind of break or a kind of um, a halting in the everyday grind of casualization and workload really do yeah mean like as Karen was saying those those moments that you might talk to people about your substandard working conditions no longer exist neither do the spaces yeah one thing is desk space so at many of these institutions especially in London it's really hard to I mean many people don't have an office for themselves so it's hot desking even if you do have a permanent job it's often still hot desking let alone being an AL an associate lecturer where it's highly unlikely that you would have an office that you could call your own but one thing that came up at that Conway Hall event um, which was organised by Kevin from the RTA and Anti University, as you mentioned, was this sense that some people there from Goldsmiths who were part, I think they've been part of all the national UCU strikes in the past few years. And the 2018 USS pension strikes was a really kind of important moment where their um, many branches around the country really came together. And it felt they or their comments were that it felt like that was happening now for another wave of institutions. I think that's really worth foregrounding. And with regards to what you were just um, retelling there, Juliet, about um, um, Owen Hathaway's um, talk on architecture, the kind of atomization that neoliberalism does so well is it takes on another level at UAL because it's six colleges spread out around the city. So a nice initiative that came up from some people at the UAL picket lines was to do a kind of half marathon between uh, UAL buildings with the exception of Wimbledon because it was unfortunately too far Um, but it did make up almost a half marathon I think around 20 kilometers so some people ran it some people cycled it and um, that was a way of fundraising for the strike fund the hardship fund so that's one way of kind of overcoming the atomization and another um, project that's probably worth mentioning was a student um, at RCA who, who set up strike radio which I thought was a really brilliant way of connecting the different picket lines and people could record things or broadcast live and another way of kind of bringing these struggles together which was um pretty effective i think yeah i mean there was uh, one of the most sort of extraordinary moments of the two weeks i think was when strike radio started broadcasting live from the uh, the rca students occupying one of the buildings there and you know attempting to talk to people higher up at the university and just not getting not getting a response and um i think all of that is archived online so you will be able to go back and hear it 
Can I also just mm-hmm. jump in there, um, just to also mention that another kind of one of these creeping mechanisms of awful neoliberal logic, you mentioned prevent, um, but just to shout out to kind of the um, Unis Resist Border Control organisation, because they did several teach outs at different picket lines. And I think that's another thing that the kind of alternative learning space of the picket line enabled was you know, lecturers and people at universities to really think, oh, those online registers that I've been told I now have to fill in might be part of a more sinister system that I was completely unaware of, because a lot of this software is now advertises itself to be home office compliant, which effectively makes um, university lecturers into border control officers. And many people are not even aware that this has been rolled out in their institutions this kind of break in the everyday, this pausing is really valuable. And I think that did happen a lot on the picket line, just these kind of the sharing of information and um, really important. So I'd like to move the conversation on now and just discuss some of the wider context uh, in which the strikes of winter and spring 2020 have been taking place and some of the wider history behind the changes to the universities that we've been talking about. So maybe we should start by talking about the wider context for the current strikes. So Annie, I wonder if you'd like to talk to us about some of the struggles that have been connected to the UCU strikes. I know there's um, some anti-gentrification action and also the RMT, the Transport Union, have been connected. So I wonder if you'd like to maybe tell our listeners a bit more about that. There was quite a lot of visiting of each other's picket lines. So as you mentioned, the RMT, especially at LCC, London College Communication, near Elephant and Castle Tube Station, there was visiting of each other's picket lines and supporting, sending a lot of donations were made from various trade unions to our strike fund. And hopefully that will be ongoing in terms of showing solidarity across different sectors. Yeah, anti-gentrification also at LCC, at Elephant and Castle, a real long-standing issue which previous student occupations um, there have also highlighted. The student occupation which recently happened at UAL also had pretty much number one on the agenda, the end outsourcing campaigns, which has been ongoing at UAL for a while. And this is about the two-tier workforce in which certain workers, normally facilities workers, such as cleaners, security guards and porters, are outsourced to multinational companies. And this is a practice which kind of began under the Tories in the 1980s and was really consolidated under New Labour. Um, And it meant that the public sector is now still very rife with this practice, which means that certain workers, so you can all be working under the same roof, but some workers will have really terrible uh, sick pay conditions and very bad parental pay and much fewer annual leave days, worse pensions. So this is what outsourcing means. It means this kind of quite galling two-tier workforce in which some people are employed directly by the university and have fairly decent working conditions and others have really terrible ones and also experience bullying and intimidation as part of their daily work life. So one of the things I found really important, even though this workforce is represented by different unions, so they, they can't be represented by the universities and colleges union because that's not how the trade union policy of recent years works. But nevertheless, kind of pushing back against this enforced division uh, to bring this together. And we really did foreground the end outsourcing campaigns, so the Justice for Cleaners and Justice for Workers campaigns at UAL to try and get them brought in-house so that they can have the same terms and conditions as directly employed workers of the university. So they 
put on several demonstrations, which we visited. They visited us at the picket line. The cleaners who are predominantly Latinx and migrants being very badly treated. This is a university issue as much as many academics often don't see it as such. But we all share a workforce. and I think that comes into relief uh, more than ever with the COVID, with the coronavirus crisis. We all share physical workspaces and it's quite mystifying how this um, unfair system has managed to continue for so long. So one thing that we did do during the strikes was really trying to bring these struggles together and co-amplify one another. You just said there that Annie that, that the separation of trades things was was recent. I think it's just actually much more to do with the history of the trade union movement in this country, which is, has allied particular trades to particular forms of union organisation. And that's not the case, say, in France or somewhere where actually strikes are not organised necessarily by unions, but where unions themselves can embrace trans sector, whatever, workers. So a large union can bring out people on, on all sorts of different levels of public services and kind of bring the country to a halt, which doesn't happen because of the union structure in this country. But one thing I wanted to say about the outsourcing, which I think is I completely agree, and then we agree on this point of it being uh, integral to the body of the workplace that we co-inhabit. I think it's also the same struggle in the sense that it's about private and public, and it's about the post David Willits, the um, education minister, along with Michael Gove, who, who brought in this kind of neoliberal agenda and encouraged the seeping, the crossing in of the private sector into what was a kind of public domain. So you have private companies running the peripheral, seem to be peripheral, the estates, the security, the cleaning, those kind of jobs in a university. But you also have happened in Warwick and other universities that are trying to bring in agencies to, to produce kind of agency workers at the level of teaching. And this will also happen increasingly, I think, around supporting students' mental health, which is a massive issue for us now. Actually, as Annie says, you know, students have lots of things to juggle, including jobs. And at the moment, also, they're going to have an awful lot of anxiety coming out of or going into the COVID crisis. So it, the outsourcing is also part of that illusion of the private and public, which is pushing universities towards being corporate enterprises, which have revenue streams, which have a commodified structure. And, and so that's, that's also why it's very important that we keep these things together. It also breaks that vision of the university's insistence on keeping this kind of two-tier workforce because it is an insistence very clearly at our university. Some other universities now, that tide's changed, and Goldsmiths especially after Annie and others did lots of work there. The myth of the university as, as a civic university is completely exploded by the insistence that people who work there don't have access to libraries, don't have access to things which actually are part of the kind of civic existence of the university. Yeah, and if I could just add in there how important I think it's been for what we call base trade unions. So um, in the past few years, there's been a number of smaller trade unions who have emerged, such as the IWGB, the Independent Workers of Great Britain, the UVW, United Voices of the World, Kaiwu, um, which is the Cleaners and Allied Independent Workers Union, um, which have been really groundbreaking in terms of the union work that they've been doing. And I found it personally really formative and inspiring to see these uh, migrant workers organising and taking on really terrible contracting and employment practices in the UK. In a way, that's been a real education for me. And it has, I think, even though they're not part of the kind of trades union congress, the TUC, many of these base unions, they are 
part of a big surge of, of energy. So they're doing things like taking the UK government to court. Um, they shut down central London. They do big demos um, representing um, Uber drivers in the gig academy, delivery drivers, medical courier, cyclists, foster care workers. So they've been unionising all these different previously ununionized sections of society to great effect. And for me, that has been a real motivator to get involved in union organising, which I don't know if I would have otherwise been incentivized to get organised into. So that's been a real push in terms of energy and showing what's possible. I think it's, it's also something that you said, Annie, about the shift that needs to happen in the established trade unions. The problem we have is that in order to have any quick rehab of trade union history, <laughs> two seconds, in order for a union to have any power in terms of negotiating collective bargaining with a group of employers, you have to have what's called recognition. That's to say an employer needs to acknowledge or consult or negotiate, that is to say actually reach an agreement about things with a recognised trade union. And how they manage to operate at the moment is by having, a, again, a kind of two-tier system of those unions which are recognised and those which aren't recognised. But I think as the trade union laws in this country are going to get harder and harder, or as the laws which controlling trade union activity are going to get more and more, I was going to say spiteful, but it's hard not to see how they're not more spiteful, but certainly much more rigid. For example, the fact that universities had to come out on this strike one by one because in order to get a strike, to have lawful strike action, you have to have a postal ballot. It can't be online or by text. It has to have a turnout of more than 50% of all members and it has to have a, a vote for action of more than, I think, 60-70%. And it's because of those habits of kind of low participation in any kind of votes, and he was talking about it at the beginning of the program, it's been very hard to get over that threshold. And that's why we've had to come out on strike this time one by one. And you can be sure that the government will actually learn from that and bring in some new kind of way clause in which we can't operate in that way so i think the emergence of these kind of unrecognized these base trade unions that you're talking about is actually one way around that and i think that collision of the kind of realization that you know unity is strength of the kind of old trade union movement but as it becomes infected by the collective energy of the new trade union movement i think that is where i see a kind of hopeful future yeah completely and i think if you speak to the trade unionists of these base unions a lot of them don't you know, they don't wreck their heads over not getting official trade union recognition because there's so much that they can still affect and they've won incredible victories of recent years without that recognition. So they're also showing us different ways of doing things that aren't necessarily just not to negate it, but um, aren't based around, you know, sitting around a negotiating table. There's other ways that they have shown that they can name and shame um, these really terrible practices. I think we've seen in, the, in this last wave of strike action and the, in the, um, the amount that it took to kind of get this wave of strike action and yet the resistance to any movement really, any real agreement, any offer, which is the way that you resolve a dispute, any reasonable offer shows us that negotiation is increasingly looking in the same way that you t- I stopped you yet talking about, you know, parliamentary route is not necessarily the way we're going to solve lots of problems. I think people are feeling that negotiation is not going to take us where we need to go because employers in this kind of marketized financialized world of the corporate university don't see the necessity to negotiate. In fact, they tend to take legal action on the necessity to negotiate. That's the kind of level of trust there is between us now. So I think increasingly people are going to see that as a dead end and find other ways to enact change. I think that's an interesting place to conclude our conversation about what's going on now. But I think it would be interesting to just shift our focus from the future back to the relatively recent past. It's interesting, and I think to me it's quite tempting to see 
the Thatcherite project, what we often call neoliberalism, as an attack on the idea of post-war cultural democracy. I don't want to spend too long on that because we did a show on this in 2017, not long after the election, sort of ideas of people like Stuart Hall, Richard Hoggart, Raymond Williams, post-war cultural theorists who were very interested in this idea of a kind of popular modernism and a popular intellectualism which fed into television and pop music. And, you know, of course, one of the most interesting and relevant, relatively contemporary writers and thinkers on this was, of course, Mark Fisher and his book Capitalist Realism spends a lot of time talking about the casualization of university and higher education environments and its effects on mental health. You know, Mark taught in an adult education centre, which is something I've been doing recently, actually. I've also been teaching at City Lit, the very well-established adult education centre in London. I've been teaching a a queer fiction course and indeed using the kind of electronic registers that we were talking about earlier and had to do prevent training for that, whereas I haven't had to do it for my more casual work at the RCA and other universities. But, you know, Mark talked a lot about this idea of anti-elitism. And whenever you see people talking about getting rid of cultural elitism, it always means the reintroduction of a material elite. You know, these attacks on people having free and easy access to intelligent culture, often outside of a university, these attacks are often tied to the privatisation and marketization of knowledge. Quite an interesting thought experiment I did not too long ago on Twitter was to go through some television listings just for BBC Two. I couldn't access Channel 4 because I'd graduated from university so I couldn't access the TV listing sites that I'd been using for the last few years because they were only available to people with an academic login that was still valid. But the BBC Genome Project put up listings for BBC Radio and Television going right back to the 1920s. So I just arbitrarily chose the month of February 1992 to look at what was freely available to people at that time. Some of the highlights I picked out included a documentary by the filmmaker Peter Adair about HIV, a weekly cinema show that interviewed Vim Vendors, an episode of their One in Four strand that looked at disabled musicians, which was signed and subtitled, the Northern Irish politician Bernadette Devlin Makaliski and the trans actor and activist Caroline Cossey on their Open to Question strand, an update on a series from 1985 called Comrades about how Soviet citizens who'd been featured in 1985 were doing after the collapse of the USSR, a transmission of Don Giovanni from the Royal Opera House, a film of Federico Garcia Lorca's House of Bernardo Orber, an Indian drama series and a TV film written by Mira Cyril, a Horizon episode about Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, the nuclear physicist, Jonathan Mead's programme abroad in Britain. You know, obviously there was a fair amount of kind of dross and filler on at this time, don't get me wrong, but you compare that sort of intellectual, cultural and political range of just that one month on free-to-air television, it's really no contest with what's happening now. And another thing, of course, they were doing was presenting a lot of open university programming, which is often on at the small hours of the morning, but of course could be video recorded by that point. A friend of mine made the point that round about the time of the introduction of the post-92 universities, a lot of this cultural coverage sort of drifted away, uh, was commissioned a lot less, and really disappeared in the late 90s, which of course is the time that Tony Blair comes in, has education, education, education as his mantra, wants 50% of the country to go to universities and abolishes student grants and replaces them with tuition fees. And I was one of the first generations of students to pay for education in, in that way. There were strikes in 2006 and tuition fee rises in 2010, of course, the famous betrayal by Nick Clegg 
the hiking of tuition fees under the coalition, which led to the student protests and occupations of 2010. I think that's the trajectory that's put us on to the current working conditions and studying conditions that we've been talking about. But Kyron, I wondered if you would like to maybe talk a bit about the Thatcherite and Blairite approaches to higher education and particularly the strikes of 2006 and uh, what's, what's changed since then. 2006, I was teaching in 2006. What I remember of the strikes at that point was most of the mechanics of withholding grades from students, of keeping students kind of on side. So I was, you know, lecture, I wasn't actually quite as actively involved in the union and oh, I was an associate lecturer, I still am. And I don't remember a lot of activity on picket lines, but it was the last point at which we actually got a kind of large movement on pay. It was a kind of three-year pay deal. So it seemed, and at the time, it didn't seem that extraordinary that we were going on strike. I think it was the, you know, it was the first time I'd actually been on strike. You know, I knew they existed. I'd read the books, I'd seen the, the images, and I don't remember it as being fantastically sort of divisive. It was, it was divisive in terms of administrators, people who were kind of squashed in the middle, or people who were sitting on, on marks. There was a lot of debate about whether we'd withhold marks but it also seems now in retrospect to be a kind of golden era when you could make decisions about whether you were going to withhold marks which now seems almost unthinkable we certainly didn't have to count ballot papers the word was online but it is much of it and yeah so my memories of that are essentially been quite positive because we came out of it with a deal uh it seemed a kind of positive resolution but by the time it came to 2010, that I remember very clearly. I was on the, I was um, actually a steward on on the uh, 2010 demo, and that was yeah, that felt like a, a sort of massive change. I think most of the people who took part in it believed that it might have some impact. In the same way, I suppose that those of us who were ancient enough to have been on the um, stop the war, not in my name march a decade earlier, believed that it might have some impact, or being on the streets might have some impact. At that time, the student union, the NUS, wasn't very politically active, I should say. It wasn't, I think, had fallen for the Clegg promises. There was yeah, definitely a, um, a kind of mass wake-up for a whole generation of students who understood betrayal for the first time. There wasn't a strike around the same time, but there was a feeling that everybody who was involved in education at all was kind of out on the street. And if you knew anyone who'd ever taught anyway, you'd see them on that march. I think the fact that that made no difference as far as students are concerned was also part of a kind of political awakening because from that time on, I'd say up to another kind of key point in the history of this is, is 2015, when there was a kind of spell, a spate of occupations across Europe, really. Key one was in Amsterdam and there were several also in London at the same time. And that was a kind of explosion of, of student anger and frustration and a kind of excitement at political power and the possibility of having a different kind of education, which, again, dwindled really from then on. But as someone who was involved in trade union, certainly branch secretary level, so that's to say quite high in a local organisation, there was uh, a, che- a kind of sea change in the kind of students who got actively involved in student politics in the student union, which up to then had tended to be. I was teaching at the time um, courses on 1968 on different kinds of counter-cinema and trying to explain to students about Hornsey, trying to explain to students why they might not just accept 
the shifting of their canteen into prefab and a load of machines um, when they could actually kind of run it themselves and was getting nowhere with them because, or, or getting, <laughs> getting a long way maybe in terms of education, but nowhere in terms of their kind of political awakening because they would say things like, but we'll have left by the time that makes any change. From then on, for certainly for a period of 2013-14, we definitely had a different kind of engagement in student union activism. And that kind that is now, I mean, occupations were not really in large numbers up to then. 2015 was a kind of big moment. And I think it's become less exceptional to have occupations as you had at Goldsmiths, as you had at King's, as they had at a large number of places Yeah, since then. You know, obviously, yes, we talk about the Thatcherite attacks on higher education. And one of the first things Thatcher did, of course, was take down funding for adult education centres. We've talked about the disappointment of the Blairite transition to tuition fees. And Private Eye said at the time that it was rumoured, I don't have confirmation of this, but it was rumoured that John Major had taken Tony Blair aside and said, look, I've had the treasury on at me about this for years and I never did it because I thought free education should be a right. So you had this disappointing issue of the Blair government being to the right of the John Major government. And that was by no means the only time that happened. And of course, was quite radicalising in its way. That was the period in which I came to politics. So the change in Blair education policy, followed by the tuition fee hiking and the student protests that we've just been talking about, and I, you know, you also mentioned the Stop the War movement. And I think the sort of Jeremy Corbyn their Labour Party would not have happened without all of these things. And, you know, for all the, the sort of four and a half year period of Corbyn's leadership ultimately ended in sort of disappointment and defeat, which I hope is not going to become despair because we have seen it motivate people to unionise to get involved in other types of political activity that are outside of the Labour Party. And I think it's good that not all radical and progressive political activity is tied to the Labour Party. But, you know, I think those those four years have given people a much greater class consciousness, a much greater sense of solidarity, and uh, yet another lesson for the left in defeat, admittedly, but yet another lesson for the left about how we might organise differently and how we might ultimately build the kind of better world that artists and art students, I think, you know, are often at the forefront of those types of projects. I think we'll conclude the episode there. So it just remains for me to say thank you to Kyron and Annie. Thank you. Thanks so much, Julia, for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure. You know, we, we've not done an episode before on the university specifically, and it was long overdue that we did. And I think it's a great way to bring the show back. So listeners, um, you can find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. Find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sweet dash 212. You can find us on iTunes. And if you want to help fund the show, you can go to patreon.com slash sweet 212 or find us on DonorBox. We'll tweet out the link. We will resume series three of sweet 212 at some point after all of this ends but for now i will be interviewing a number of contemporary artists and writers we've got abbas sahedi lars Iyer, and owen hathley and tai shani lined up for the time being but there'll be plenty more of those over the next few months so thanks for listening take care goodbye